Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater with the normal bitcheries and qualms by watching the video recordings from of questionable origins of various productions. This week, we are talking about the Broadway production of Susicle, specifically the performance from February 9th, 2001. There are a good number of clips from this performance online. Adding Rosie O'Donnell to your search results will get you what you need. We mention this because while we review the show itself, we also share thoughts about the specific performance we've seen. The internet is your friend, darling. So without further ado, the curtain is now rising. I just love Broadway's vocal divas like Rosie O'Donnell. Please enjoy our discussion of the February 9th, 2001 performance of Susicle. After all of those years being stuck in your head, did you ever imagine I'd be in your bed? Now I'm... Uh, oh, fuck. That doesn't work. Um, let's see. That's, um... Uh, podcast head... I... Uh, give me a second, I'll get this. Head. Yeah, uh, it, it, I don't think I don't think in your bed is ears, the greatest. Ears, ears. Shut up, image. shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Okay. Shut up. After all of those years being stuck in your ears, did you ever imagine you'd see me giving cheers? Now I'm here. There's no telling um, what may ensue. No, there's no telling what. But I'll give you a clue. Seuss! I don't. I think cheers is a bit of a stretch. Seuss! What, what would you be giving cheers for? Seuss! I don't understand. Cheers to the... the show. Cheers to the performers. Um, maybe. Oh, we'll okay. See. So you're saying that you're going to be complimentary towards Susicle. We'll see. I guess Who we will. Knows? Hello, everyone. Thank you for Who tuning knows? in. People don't expect it, the... probably. Well, fair enough. I mean, you've had strong opinions on the podcast. Never, never. I have. It's one of my downfalls. I have lily-livered, weak-willed opinions that are You're kind just of more too... musings than opinions. I'm not forceful enough. Right. If there's one thing I could I could describe you as, it's uh, lackadaisical, meek. Yes, absolutely. Well put. Hello, Hello everyone. Everybody. Welcome to the Unauthorized Critic Circle, where today we are talking about the original Broadway production of Susical. Seuss! Let's jump right into the conversation. What do you say? What did you know about Seussical? I had um never seen Seussical before. Never sat in the audience and watched it. I was in it, though. I was in it. It was the first show I ever did. Is that so? First show. Yes. Um, so the high school in my area did it. And they brought in a group of kids to play the military kids in the military number. And I was one of the kids. I was the youngest in the cast. Um, mm. I was very young. Let's keep talking about how young I am. I really Sure. I know how, I I know so how much you enjoy that. I was so young. And I had a lot of fun. And I know practically every word of the show still, I realized mm. watching this. But I've never seen it. So this is your first time Until sitting this. in the audience for the show? Mm-hmm. What did mm. you know? I have a similar 
experience. This was the, I believe, third show I ever did in my life. In my fifth grade, I want to say. Fifth grade. It Mm. was a blast. I remember having a lot of fun. I was younger than you. Oh my god, stop the podcast. This is a lovely phrase. I was younger than you. 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 And you never will be again. So, I did. Fuck you. (laughs) So, I did Susicle in my fifth grade. I remember having a fantastically fun time with it. Um, What were you in Susicle? You never said. Oh, um, okay. So I played Horton, sort of. Uh, the theater troupe I was in had a, uh, it was one of those, you know, companies that double cast their kids. You know, it was a whole bunch of kids, and so everyone had to, like, you know, get a chance, get a part, you know. Um, so it was all double cast. Uh, the thing was, there was only one performance. And so you wonder just, how how do you double cast when if you're only doing one show? So... I had the privilege of playing Act 1 Horton in Susicle. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) So you only did Act 1? Yeah, but I remember being very happy with it because I remember looking at Act 2 and going, oh, Horton just sits on a ladder for all of Act 2. I'm happy not doing that. I remember having a fun time with the show. I hadn't really touched it in forever. I just remembered always having this sort of affinity for it, this love for it. I remember it just being this really fun, fantastical show. Um, I watched a little bit of a production a year or two ago that was on YouTube by a Zneef Rock Productions, which is the production company that uh, Andrew Barth Feldman uh, started when he was a teenager. And they did this really interesting, like, very contemporary... Company. Yeah, he did it as a mitzvah project. Uh, and he... Him and his friend, they they make shows together. He did, like, this blended with realism production of Susicle that emphasized the themes of war. That was really interesting to watch. Uh, and so I have I watched, like, the first half hour of that. And that's pretty much as much as I'd gotten into Susicle in the past little while. Themes um, of war? What did they do? They They played up the aspect of, like, Jojo growing up in a world that is like encumbered by war, like a like a world in which war is taking like precedence, and they I think they draw parallels to like the Iraq War a little bit, and the the, the entire like part where he's shipped out to military school is like takes a big precedence. It, I I don't know how to explain. I haven't seen it in a very long time. I'd I'd be interested in rewatching it, and I I I'd, I'd like to know what you. Not to say about it, too, because I think you you might get a kick out of it. But anyway, all this to say that that was uh, the most I'd gotten uh, into Susicle recently. I'd never actually sat in the audience and watched a production uh, either. So this was my first time really sitting back and watching a professional production of Susicle. So now that we've established our affinities and our awareness and our knowledge of Susicle, let's jump right into discussing... What do you think is the moral of Susicle? Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Is this really the question we're asking? 
Uh, each of the Dr. Seuss books have a moral. There's about ten different Dr. Seuss books <laughs> in this show. You can there's ten different morals somewhere in there. Um, since you seem interested in asking this question, go ahead. What is the overarching moral? Don't be afraid to dream. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Great. Now, what's yours? Don't be afraid to dream. Oh, that one's been taken. What's your original? idea for the moral of Susical. Okay. Give me a second. I'll come up Take all the seconds you need. Uh, The moral of Susical is that if Rosie opened the show, it would run longer. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Perhaps. Show sold out once. Show sold out once. It was only when she was on stage. Let's talk about it, huh? Let's start. Let's talk about this show. What'd you think about the show? When we were when we were first talking about like 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 when we were both sort of jumping into watching it, I expect n- not expect, but like I anticipate this sort of like level headedness from you. Like you know, you you critique shows fairly, and you sort of look past the artifice or like, what it tries to implement. <laughs> fairly, you I'm of, sure there's a lot of listeners who do not agree with you. But like you try, like you you critique it more on like the material than about like you know how like fun or exciting or happy of a, of a production it is you know you 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 look at it like from a very objective stance and so and so when i get the message from you saying i don't think i can be subjective with susical i'm having the time of my life watching this i knew that i was in for something like really substantially fun and the russians hacked my account i am the ultimate subjective person god damn it this show was fun this show was perfectly fun. This was just one of the most joyful, happy, exciting productions of a musical I've ever seen. I don't know if it has more to do with that like deeply ingrained emotional association that we all hold with Dr. Seuss because it's pretty it's very difficult, I feel, to grow up in an environment that is completely sheltered from Dr. Seuss. I think it permeates you at least to a certain extent. Well, he's being canceled now, so then young kids are going to have to grow up without him. <laughs> the entire Dr. Seuss has been canceled discourse makes me want to defenestrate myself. Conservatives need to take like a deep breath, I think. They need to go and touch some grass. I would strongly advise that. Any conservatives listening to this podcast, I beg of you, touch, touch some grass. grass. Climb a tree. <laughs> like, just breathe in some air, please. Did you not think through this at all? Who do you think canceled those books? That was not a decision made by anyone except the estate. The estate went to the publisher and said, pull these books. So Dr. Seuss has like so thoroughly permeated the cultural diaspora that it's hard to avoid it, right? And so I don't know if that sort of ingrained nostalgia is what's made it such an exciting experience for me. It is, I... I, Well... I can't say it's... I've been I've had more of a genuinely like delightful time watching a show. You know, I wouldn't just say people love Dr. Seuss, so people are going to love Seussical. It could have been a shitty adaptation of Dr. Seuss. Right. And we'll and then... get to that in a minute. You know, I just I loved Seussical. Mm. I just loved it. So many lovely memories. Okay, mm-hmm. I was closeted, and that wasn't lovely. But the other <laughs> stuff from that time in my life. 
Is is the, does the nostalgia come from Doctor Seuss or from Seussical specifically? You know, the Doctor Seuss book I loved, which this should tell you a lot about me and my political leanings. The Doctor Seuss book I loved was the Lorax. Mm. His mm-hmm. environmental climate change is bad. Screw the big corporations book. Which also, good job, conservatives. You're really sticking it to the liberals by reading your kids <laughs> the Lorax. <laughs> oh, that's so About funny. how big corporations are ruining the environment and we're going to be living in a barren wasteland unless we start planting trees and living green. I also... The fucking idiots. It, it, the, all, that's reminding me, too, of the Lorax movie in which the movie that was... So outspoken. It's a it's a movie uh about based on a book that is very outspoken about the dangers of corporate greed that had uh seventy five different product placement tie-ins. Mm. When the Lorax movie what? came out, you could not find a package in a grocery store that did not have that character's face on it. What I remember about the Lorax movie is Zephron was on the red carpet. And he had his hand in his pocket and he pulled his hand out of his pocket and condoms came out of his pocket <laughs> and spilled onto the red carpet. And I what? was, um, it, it, that was a formative moment in my life. <laughs> you know, it wasn't Dr. Seuss necessarily, although I liked Dr. Seuss, but I was never in love with the book the grinch i liked the cartoon seussical though i don't know i just i really like the show Mm. i just really like the show and yeah yeah, some of it is nostalgia but i don't know i think there's a lot good going for it i think it specifically ties down to we can get into this a lot when we talk about the production but how wonderful of an adaptation it is and how effective it is at translating the exact Dr. Seuss aesthetic and attitude to a live-action performance. A lot of critics would have disagreed with you at the time. Really? And this got awful reviews. I, I, I figured it would have been mostly due to critics who are very out of touch with whimsy. Mm, we'll get... I have a theory we'll get into later. But, you know, let's just start... Talking about, like, the nuts and bolts of the writing. Sure. This is, like, a much better written Disney show with half of the budget. Yeah. Yeah. Like, much more solid writing, much more solid plotting. I'd say better music, because by the time those Disney shows get on stage, they have 10 or 15 songs added that are just, what the fuck is this? I, I thought it, it... It's a kid's show. I yeah. don't think that can be denied. Seussical and is a kid's show. But a solidly written kid's show. And I think this is the kind of show that proves when you make a kid's show, you don't have to just write something with colors and laughs and images in it. It's not just, you you don't have to skimp because you're writing it for kids. This shows that you can create material for kids that has a lot of work and care and attention put into it, and it pays off. Yes. So much 
media targeted to kids is done with the attitude of, oh, well, they're young, so what are, what nuance are they going to pick up on? So what difference does it make to them if this has any less attention given to it? They're there for a sensory experience, nothing more. Yeah, this yeah. disproves me, it's that. What I call the sugar experience. Let's get them all sugared up, let's get them riled up, and let's just get them out the door. Yeah. They just think the kids are going to just have fun and not pay attention and not care about character and not really care about plot, but they're going to remember the fun, bouncy moments. And kind of this idea that kids kind of have no inner life. If that makes any sense. Yes. Like, they don't have any emotional situations they deal with. They're just little annoying things, which I often think, but hmm. isn't always true. <laughs> Frankly, I think kids deserve better. Like kids deserve better than the stuff they get right now. That's, that's, that's mm -hmm. what I have to say about it. They, they're fed so much color and lights and giving them something of substance is so important and something like this that actually, you know, has that love and detail in every single second of it. But doesn't talk down to the kids. Of course. It introduces complex concepts in an approachable way and is something that they can kind of grow into. Rather than just, here's your level, we're going to go a little below it so right. you can understand it and not be confused. Here is my question, not to pick on a specific show or movie, but you've seen Frozen. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything as harmonically complex as Solace Lou? Anything close? Maybe that opening instrumental number, if anything. But it doesn't have that emotional resonance to it. It's just underscoring, really. I really like loved that, like, Solace really... Lou watching it yeah. this time. What struck me is that in the middle of Act 2, you have this ballad completely minor in a minor key, which feels on its own, I don't know, a little rare for a kid's show. And then you listen to the song and you realize, is it about depression? It might be about depression. It's certainly about how happiness is hard. And it's something that you keep having to search for every moment of your life. I've had so much trouble finding my way there. When I get close, it disappears. Happiness isn't something that's going to be lasting. Like, this is a complex, really adult number to put into a kid's show. And I don't mm. think it was written specifically to be a kid's show. But to say that the kids are going to sit here and they're going to accept this... That takes some balls. It speaks to this, like, this sort of mirage of a destination where you escape from your troubles and you're always trying to get to there. And you never get there. You never get to Salu. You just sit there on your way to Salu, thinking about how you want to be on your way there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just... The fact that something that complex is put well and that it wasn't couched in uh easy one yeah. three five chords yeah. <laughs> in bright c major happiness 
It's haunting There's almost. There's a faraway land, so the stories I'll tell. Somewhere beyond the horizon. Where is this resolving? This is... Plagent. Yeah. And it is very haunting. Um, and it, it, the song itself doesn't come to much of a resolution. Mm. There's a kind of Picardy third at the very end. But... The composing itself hints at the fact that this is something you are going to search for for a long time, and you might not find there. And not that I don't want to use the word meandering because mm. it's not meandering, but it is very um, searching. It's searching for a path. Mm-hmm. And the melody itself is searching for a path, can't necessarily find it. But that is intentional. That isn't any kind of, you know, something that the composer didn't do. That is intentional. I think that's a perfect interpretation of that story. And that's a perfect interpretation of what those lyrics are. And then to give it to those kids so unfiltered is shocking. What do you think of the score altogether? I, that was another thing I was about to get at. Mm-hmm. I think... Stephen Flaherty really tapped into what does Dr. Seuss music sound like? (laughs) Yeah. What are the natural rhythms here? Where are these stories and where are these Seussian lyrics going to be at home and feel correct? And I don't think they were given any props at the time for... This could have been terrible. They really could have completely missed the mark. And overall, I do think there are some issues, but I think it's a brilliant score. I've never heard something as Seuss as, like, we're who's here, we are who's here, smaller than the eye can see. It's so, like, it... It just makes sense. It doesn't feel like, oh, we're telling a Dr. Seuss story and these this is the music that's going to get us there. It feels, like, attached. It feels so correct. And and, and you, it, it's something yes. that... It's one of the few shows where I do sit back and wonder, what is it that makes this come to them? How do you just get that so right? How can you develop that? I'll tell you what it is. Mm. I've listened to Aaron's and Flaherty interviews. I believe it was Waiting for Life to Begin. Not completely 100%. It was a song from Once on this Island. And Lynn Aaron's sent over the lyric to Stephen Flaherty. And he said he went to his roof and he just started walking around, finding a beat, reading the lyrics until he found the rhythms. Hmm. So I betcha any money they sat around reading those Seuss books, finding the rhythms. Can you imagine, genuinely, can you imagine doing like intense research for a project? So many pieces of fantastic musical theater are based on works of literature. So many. can And like people will have books and essays, you know, essays like talking about those books and like materials and like critical analyses of stuff like that. Can you imagine a pile going up to the to the ceiling of Dr. Seuss books and these two people just like hunched over on desks, meticulously flipping through Dr. Seuss books, really trying to like immerse themselves in that. It shows they care about their craft. 
Sin- sincerely. It shows they care about their craft. Even if the shows are not all winners, even if the shows don't completely work, Aaron's and Flaherty are two excellent craftsmen mm-hmm. who know what their job is. Absolutely. And then the lyrics. We talked about the score a little bit. We just scratched the surface with the score. Yeah, yeah here's, here's, the, here's the thing. Short change. We'll come back to it. To not mm-hmm. shortchange the lyrics yeah. so fast. Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. There isn't music associated with Dr. Seuss. There are books. Music does not come with the books. There's no ingrained musical association that people make with Dr. Seuss. But if there's anything You're that people a mean associate, one, Mr. Grinch. Sure, but aside from that and maybe like one or two other examples, there isn't a musical style that Dr. Seuss just has to it. What there is is a language. There is such an instant noticeable it's either completely right or it's not if it's even a little bit off it completely deflates it ruin it the entire thing is wrong if the language is even a little bit off and mm-hmm. it's perfect it's just 100 percent perfection that was about the point i was going to make yeah i don't think enough people gave lynn aarons enough credit for take these books chop them up, make them shorter so you can fit more of the books in, which we'll talk about is, are there too many different subplots in the show? Hmm. But create your own language that melds in with Dr. Seuss. Create completely different songs based on nothing from any of the Dr. Seuss books that sound like they match his lyrics. Sound like they match his books poetry what have you Mm -hmm. that is a tall order to fill and i don't think watching this show you're going to point to anything and say oh that's lynn aarons if you do it's because you know all the dr seuss books absent that it doesn't sound nothing here sounds out of place lyrically there's a production that needs to be done the score has to be correct you have to give it a book but the lyrics are what would make or break a Dr. Seuss musical, ultimately. Because the entire Dr. Well, Seuss iconography... Well, this is mostly sung through. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, why I was, like, that's why I wanted to sort of brush off the, the book a little bit, because this, re- this thing really is 85 90% score. But it, this, the entire show rests on the weight of the lyrics, really. You have to get the aesthetics down... In order to finish it, but it has to stand on the structure of the lyrics. Them being so perfect is what allowed this show to be as good as it was. The score itself utilizes so many different forms and so many different genres. There's mm-hmm. more rock edge songs, uh, there's Aretha Franklin homages, there's how lucky you are which is like a 1920s vaudeville song yeah. <laughs> it runs the gamut stylistically while the lyrics and the whole dr seuss is single tone the score is never single tone it finds several ways into dr seuss while still feeling uniquely dr seuss it is a very cartoony 
kind of choice to like be jumping back and forth between so many musical styles. You know, I find I find that that's something that's like very emblematic in shows that do want to take on that very cartoony uh feeling to it. You know, they'll 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 genre hop and they'll really like dip their toe into every single water. We saw it to significantly less great effect in SpongeBob. Um I know something that that uh <sighs> Something like like the show Beetlejuice, which tries to carry itself out, is pretty practically a live action cartoon. Also jumps back and forth between every genre in the world, but here it really does. It it's aided by the fact that everything feels cartoony. You know, like everything feels like you're looking at the page. There's nothing that really but detracts from that. Cartoony not being a negative. Here of course not. No, no, never a negative. I don't think cartoony's ever a negative. No, it can be. It definitely can be. I think if you pull it off successfully, I don't think it can be. This intended to be cartoony pulled it off successfully, and therefore this is a positive thing. Hmm. I think that's what okay. I guess if something's not intending to be, I should say if like something that it something yeah. that is intending to be cartoony is not inherently a negative. Sutton Foster at her worst is cartoony. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cartoony. You understand when no- what I mean? Cart- having cartooniness in something that's trying to be realistic is bad. But it all feels of a piece. This does all feel of a piece. Yes, and that's the pro. That's what so many of those shows get so wrong. Mm-hmm. It feels non-linear. It feels like there's no through line. It feels like we're jumping back and forth randomly and that there's no grounding. Here, you get a sense of unification. Um, Something like All For You... Or Notice Me Horton. Those are completely created. That's not anywhere in any book. And yet, they're just such well-written theater songs, regardless of genre. This is what I mean by there's so much good work happening. We could go through the score and we could probably list ten different songs that are just good songs. Okay. As much as I love the show, Act 2 does fray a bit at the edges. I don't think the egg material is as successful as the Act 1 Clover material. Mm -hmm. Just on a whole, we spend most of Act 2 at the beginning without Jojo, and then all of a sudden we bring Jojo back up again. It seems like he's coming out of nowhere. And then he's killed off, and that is also a little bit confusing. So here's my question. Are there too many Dr. Seuss books in Seussical? I think we can answer that question in two different ways. We can answer one in the terms of narrative storytelling and two, its effect in Seussical. Does that make sense? I'll start by talking about its effect in Seussical. And I'll say this. There's no one story that everyone who knows Dr. Seuss says is the main Dr. Seuss story. It's it, You could maybe make the argument that the cat in the hat is maybe the most prominent, like it's maybe like the, the, the figurehead of it. But there's no one Dr. Seuss story that it's like you read this one and you get the gist. It's Green Eggs and Ham. It's The Lorax. It's Oh, the Places You'll Go. It's Horton Hears a Who. It's The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. There's not so much of like a Dr. Seuss story a central story as there is a dr seuss universe there is an entire world 
of these characters. And the beauty of the Dr. Seuss, I suppose, franchise is that there's so much quality world building, really. There's a unified aesthetic among them all. There's a unified language. There's a unified... Like, goddammit, I would venture to say Dr. Seuss, I think, is the children's Shakespeare. And so when you have all of these fantastic stories, these fantastic things all taking place under this same umbrella of a world, putting them all together feels like the right way to celebrate the worlds of Dr. Seuss. Do they all belong in the same musical, though? I think there's one too many books in here. What do you have anything off the top of your head that you'd first? uh, Do you know what the 90 minute version of the show is by any chance? Uh, No, I I don't. don't. They did a revision for the show when the show toured. And I believe that is what is licensed. Yeah. That's another thing I wanted to mention because I, here's the thing. I don't even know what's licensed nowadays. Right. Because when I was in the show, we were the first production in the area, and I almost hmm. want to say that it wasn't. There were some tour revisions, but all of the revisions I've read about were not in place when we did the show. I'm not sure. I don't remember well enough, but what is licensed right now? At least from what I did, I I did it in like the past. It's been uh, more than a decade, but I know there's a different framework. Okay, here's what it is. Here's what it is. It's the pre-truncation uh, national tour production. Um, I'll read what it says on Wikipedia. Um, the script for the first tour was reworked extensively after the show's poor showing on Broadway, resulting in the removal or reworking of several songs. The biggest change involved Jojo, who was now initially an anonymous boy before the cat pushed him into the story. Uh, additional was dialogue was included. Some songs reprises were cut. This version of the show is the one currently licensed by MTI as Susical the Musical. And then there's a further 90-minute cut version. It was more theater theater for young audiences. It mm-hmm. played off-Broadway. Um, I don't know what stayed in, what was cut. My ideas are that the Grinch stuff, I do believe, ended up being one line, which that is fine to throw I that in I think my there. production also had it that. It does go on a long time. Did it have the full thing or just the one line? I don't think so. I think it just had the one verse in Here on Who, I think. If this has about a three or four minute Grinch thing. Yeah. Which is fine, but this is my other point. Aaron's and Flaherty found so much Dr. Seuss to musicalize, and yet, when it came to the Grinch material, nothing was musicalized. Huh, maybe that's a sign. (laughs) Do you not think so? Hmm, maybe if we had every piece of Dr. Seuss and, ooh, if we couldn't find anything to musicalize in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, uh, maybe we don't want to throw Matt Morrison on NBC for three hours and bore the audience out of their fucking minds. Oh my god, it was one of the worst things I've ever seen. Okay, gazai we're moving on. Oh, I, I just remember all the backlash towards uncomfortably horny Grinch. I, I, I'm having flashbacks. It's my name. I'm so sorry. Not really. No, no, no. No. 
Pete Williams' daughter in Peter Pan was my Nam. Mm. (laughs) The Grinch stuff could have been cut. And although this is what I did in the show, I think you could have cut the entire military sections. And you needed to rework JoJo in the second act. I agree. I agree that the military portion of it could have been replaced with something. I would consider that part of the story sort of interchangeable. I, 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 don't, I, I definitely wouldn't say that you could just do without it per se. I think you'd definitely need to like put something of like an equal kind of scenario. You know, you, like you'd need to give Jojo a through a, a, a an obstacle. Yeah, an you obstacle. Need to give Jojo an obstacle. I understand. Specifically, that. one of that um, kind. I don't know. We spend. It's a whole five minute number, and then Jojo disappears for a good fifty minutes. You know, that's the middle of Act One. That number ends, and then it's all the way to the middle of Act Two when we see him again. That's a long time to be away from that character. Right. So I agree. that is my gut reaction of. If there are one too many books here, and I honestly do think there's just one, you need to cut one. That is either what needs to go, or you cut the egg. Which I don't know how you get to the ending without the egg, but you could still have Horton poached and put into a circus. But we spent a long time with Maisie out in Palm Beach and then seeing Horton and then going away and then were we supposed to remember Maisie from the first act? It just... Act 2 gets a little messy. And I don't mind the messiness as much as I would in other shows because there's so much entertaining happening and I think there's Mm -hmm. a lot of good entertainment happening. But the show could be cleaner. I don't yeah. love it any less, but the show could be cleaner. I can, I, I can agree with you on that front. Th- th- that is something that I'm realizing in hindsight, that I I did feel that we went away from the entire world of the Who's from an, for an uncomfortable amount of time. Like, not, not uncomfortable, but like, you know Oh, I mean, I mean uh, JoJo is a Who, but to see the Who's again... What? Like, e- like even even with Jojo in the middle a... of act two where we find out that Jojo is dead that also didn't I don't like killing the kid off because it just we're going to rewind I, it, why did I sit here and watch this mm-hmm it but just, like killing the kid off feels too cruel to me and just generally too with Jojo doesn't pop up a whole lot through the second act either he really has like what is it like three four scenes altogether it's very, like, Horton-focused, which I'm not upset about. But we spend too much time, I feel, just completely not even thinking about the the Who's. And I'm sitting there going, like, is are we not still supposed to care about the fact that they're missing now, out there somewhere? It's been a year. Are we just expected to believe that they're dead now? Like, should we stop caring? Mm. That was something that rubbed me off a little bit. It's They're juggling a lot of balls in the air. And they're not really dropping any of the balls, but they're really jumping around to pick them up, if that makes sense. Yeah, well put. As a whole analogy. The other thing, I did did take a note that the show does seem very leftist anti-war. Which Susical characters would fit into here? Go ahead. I think the post-Grinch Grinch. Grinch. Totally. He is rocking out there with like a 
a full decked out shag carpet of a coat and sunglasses. That's like, I'm pretty sure that is a track in hair already. Okay. Matthew Morrison might have played it. <laughs> Do you think there's a Salasalu, or does everyone have their Salasalu? You know, every time I talk about Dr. Seuss, I relate it back to Tony Kushner. And hmm. in Tony Kushner's play, Angels in America, <laughs> he has Belize saying that heaven is like San Francisco. I think yeah. everyone creates their own heaven. I think everyone can create their own Salasalu. Sure. Great. Okay. That's a good response. And if you want me to relate Matt Morrison and How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Tony Kushner, give me a second, but I'll come up with something. Oh, please, please, please. I will take as much time as you need so I can get that. Do you want to move on to the critical reaction? I think now would be a good time to talk about how the critics... Yeah, I'd be down. Reacted. They hated this show. Why do you think? Uh, because people have no whimsy or love for life. Tell you the truth, I think... Yeah. I think it has to do with a detachment from the material. Well, no, because if anything, these... If Dr. Seuss was still publishing books in the 60s, these critics grew up with the Dr. Seuss books as children when they first were published. So then what, like, what really is it? Like, what is There's it? two things. Uh-huh. There's two things, and the first thing is called Lion King. This is about two years after The Lion King. And The Lion King was an unprecedented hit. And I think the critics were freaked that if Lion King was the biggest hit ever and Susicle was a similarly sized hit, adult musical theater would be dead forever. Oh, Which, so you think the hit was placed on this? Yes, I don't understand why they were so negative when... Okay, it's not a perfect show. I don't think either of us would argue it's a perfect show, but there's a lot of good work happening. For that yeah. good work to be dismissed... I think people were freaked at this being a big, as big a hit as The Lion King. You look at the buzz of the show before it opened. They had that workshop in Toronto mm -hmm. with, with Andrea um, Martin. Yeah, and before that, you had the workshop with the Eric cat. Idle, who like put in so much work developing the show. There was a workshop with Eric Idle, but everyone that went to the Andrea Martin workshop walked out and said... This is the next Lion King. This hmm. is the biggest hit that probably is going to see in a long time. Now, huh. you go back to the Lion King Tony season. The big rivalry that year was Lion King and Ragtime. Ragtime won all the writing awards. So, Susicle, you have the writing team that you supported that you said were good writers for Ragtime. They are now doing the quote-unquote kiddie Disney show they might actually be able to give some real writing depth to this. And the news out of the workshop is it's potentially a huge hit. Well, they go out of town and everything seems to go to shit. Hmm. And they fired the director. They fired the costume designer. They threw out every costume from the first costume designer. 
They had huh. temporary costumes for a couple of weeks while the re- next second set of costumes with William Ivy Long, the new costume designer, those costumes were still being built, so they just were in black for a couple of weeks. <sighs> there was blood in the water. What was rapturous and everyone was saying was going to be a big hit now looked like it might not even come into Broadway at all. Golly. So you go in with all of that history knowing this might be brilliant, but everything else we've heard says this is going to be terrible. Which brings me to point two. I think the orchestrations are fine. It's a decent set of orchestrations. I think the orchestrations are wrong for this show. Yeah? It is very loud in the first ten minutes. It is extremely, extremely manic and extremely, extremely loud. You think back to that overture, and there's those guitars, those electric guitars wailing, and mm. you go into Biggest Blame Fool, and there's a million different choral thing, choral parts. Everyone is singing at the same time. And it gave, I think, the wrong impression that everything you were about to see was going to be very in-your-face, loud, bombastic. And what followed after those 10 minutes was not that. So I think in those first 10 minutes of the show, you are over-orchestrated. You have forced them to turn off the show Mm. because they are going in with a certain idea of what this show is going to be. You gave them a confirmation that this was loud, this was bombastic, this was maybe flailing a little bit because it was unsure. And I don't think they ever got, they were able to get the critics back after that. Do you see Susical returning to New York? No. Ever? The 90-minute version played off-Broadway. And I think if it does return, it would be an off-Broadway run. You know what I would see? In the future. An, an encore production. In, like, two, three decades. Yeah. That would be really fun. Uh... Well, the show's already 20 years old. I think in another decade, I could see encores do it. I don't see a main stem Broadway run. What I could also see is just a well-cast touring production, like Jack O'Brien did with The Sound of Music, Hmm. where they get a major Broadway director, a major Broadway team, major Broadway names, but they just go on tour rather than come into Broadway. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm saying that is because everyone's done Susical at this point. Yes. If I spent $10 going to see my kid do it, why am I now giving you $200 for premium tickets to go see it on Broadway? Yeah, I get what you mean. I think a tour could be successful, especially because, you know, like if you're producing some something on Broadway, it's it's the kind of thing where it's like you want... It to have like a built-in audience, you know? And if you put something on tour, it's because, you know, the people of America will come out to see it. They'll drive the half hour, an hour to go and see the show if it comes to their area. And Susical does feel like one of those and things. And even if... Like, yeah. E- e- even if you're spending, God help you, $200 on a premium ticket for a tour, it's a night out. You didn't have to go get airfare. You didn't have to go get a hotel. You're bringing your whole family, but it's one dinner and a show. It's not an entire vacation. When you come down to the heart of it, it's a. it really is a family show. Well, and also, maybe they wouldn't tour because if you have a tour coming, you have to remove licensing. 
for a certain amount of time in the area. Oh, oh, that's it. Oh, that's easily it. Because they, mi- I was going to get to this later, but this they is make the perfect time to talk about it. Susical, yeah, yeah. easily, one of the most licensed shows in education facilities ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. single, every house in the world has had a production of Susical in it. Every single one. <laughs> Susical now holds this like extreme cultural relevance in the high school theater district or not the high school like the elementary school middle school high school realm summer camp like all that kind of stuff community kids community theater yes kids community theater and that's really its legacy now and that's something that i'm really interested like that 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 really that's a lot to think about yeah, if a show has a major national tour and it is licensed and it's coming to you within, I don't know if it's six months or eight months, but you will have your licensing blocked to not adversely affect the sales of the tour. So pulling that from licensing for a year, I don't know. I know I would really like to see an A-class equity production. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where that would be done or how that would be done, but we've all seen high school kids. Now let's see real professionals do the show. And I do think that theoretically, it's a very successful idea. I think that that it's would sure. be a popular that would be a popular tour. Mm-hmm. Like that's the kind of tour you wouldn't be seeing less than eighty percent capacity any any performance, because families come. If it was priced right. Yeah, you do have the audience. People will come to see Susical. People could would probably buy season subscriptions in order to get, like, you know, to end up getting Susical for their kids or something. Buying a whole season for Susical, I don't see. I don't think Buying it's unlikely. Buying a subscription because there's another show you want to see, and there's also Susical, yeah. Who directed this? <laughs> Good one. Um, <laughs> Frank Galati was the credited director. He was fired, and they brought in Rob Marshall. Mm. And um, Rob Marshall was who took the show to Broadway and made the final decisions. So would you, like, like, is it known how much of a real split there was? Is this pretty much the original? No, this is the original production. Uh, the Frank Galati production, however, just never really opened. Like, I don't know, he got a costume designer and got a set of costumes and they had the costume parade and the producers were like, okay, so this costume designer is fired and uh, we're going to find a different costume designer and then you're the director that approved all those costumes. This is your vision. We don't like the vision, so we're not trusting you. Um, So... Susical by Committee is so fun. It's so joyous. It's so exciting. There's every single moment there's something to see. There are certain moments, I feel like the points that we've argued sort of halt the story or sort of shouldn't be included are moments that also sort of halt the show production-wise. I will say every moment of perfect material is accompanied by perfect staging. I think the inclusion of Sort, it's sort of in-your-face stage trickery. It's sort of very, like, 
hey, look what we're doing. I don't think that was wrong. I think that was the right choice. I'm, I just keep c- coming back to that one moment in Anything's Possible where there are like these fish people that are dancing around with Jojo and then at the very end he's back in reality and suddenly popping out from the proscenium are a dozen different heads defying gravity to pop out from where they're popping out and the audience loses their mind they like squeal in excitement and I think that's just emblematic of everything that Susical was trying to go for and for the most part what it succeeded in doing here was what everyone said was the issue why the workshop worked so well and why they were just having a very tough time when they opened out of town they said that the workshop had a ladder and a couple of benches maybe but there were no sets and Mm -hmm. there were kind of pieces of costumes but no one had full costumes and so you Put the entire Seuss world on the stage from your imagination. And arguably, that is what the show is about. And they said, when the show opened out of town, and when it eventually got to Broadway, it was too literal. And there was not enough room for imagination. It too Hmm. specifically tried to render the Dr. Seuss drawings, which you cannot do, especially since a decent amount of his books were black and white drawings. Not every book, but a couple of Hmm. them were. I think it's a little overproduced. Yeah? I think there are definite moments of brilliance. I think specifically the set, and to a lesser extent the costumes they ended up with, could have been more universal, could have been more representational. Universal as in? Uh, more pliable, more, I don't want to say one set, but some of the sets felt overdrawn. Some of it was too literal. I do agree some of it just got too literal. That being said, there are moments of brilliance. You're introduced to the Who's and a magnifying glass comes out of the sky and the magnifying glass the first two who's stand there inside the magnifying glass and that's why you're able to see them that's a moment of brilliance all of those heads coming out of a million places that's a moment of brilliance those moments work what doesn't work so much are all of the jungle sounds and that dance and you've got these Odd-looking costumes that kind of hint these might be animals, but aren't literal. I would make those even more generic, which seems counterintuitive, but... I don't think that dance needed to be there. I think there could have been less scenic scenic painting. Hmm. Um, Leave more room for the imagination, is basically my note. I think what it was for me was how perfectly I thought the aesthetic matched how I see Dr. Seuss in terms of color scheming in terms of like, you know, figural shapes. But do you understand what I mean by I think the show's just a little overproduced? It's a little too big for its own good, I think. Yeah. It's kind of the same comment I made about the orchestrations. It needed another round of edits. 
Sure, all right. Because you're given, I think what happened is you're given something like Dr. Seuss where you can really go crazy and balls to the wall and just try a million different ideas. And that's fine, but at the end of the day, what are we communicating? How are we most effectively communicating it? Sure. Which I don't, I don't know. I just, uh, it was too busy visually for me. Okay. Just a little piece cut here, a little piece cut there. Do you think, ultimately, the original Broadway production of Susical was effective? Effective, definitely. I do think it's a solid, decent production. Did it show the material off to the best advantage? Uh, That's a harder question to answer. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Same question. I think absolutely effective. And I also think you are able to enjoy the production enough to possibly tune out the fact that it isn't totally right. Why don't we move on to the performances? All right. Where do you want to start with? Do you have one of those, like, Game of Life spinners? That'd be fun. Put all the characters on one of those spinners and just spin it and whoever we land on, that's who we talk about. This would be a perfect show to do that. Rosie O'Donnell. Cat in the Hat. Holy shit, have you ever seen a more right portrayal of a character? She plays herself. But... Yeah, no, 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 not to say say that... uh, no, I'm not. I'm. I definitely don't think that she tapped into the cat in the hat psyche at all. But just as a performance, she's playing herself. But God, is she likable? And God, is she fun in this? God, should she have opened this show? She just nails it. So fluent in this, she has the audience like over her knee practically. She reads the energy so well and she's so good at playing with the audience and keeping them engaged she doesn't waste a second she's fun she's there for the audience she feels at home on stage they certainly love i have did you ever imagine you'd see me on stage two lines in and the audience is just erupting in applause you know i used to watch the rosie o'donnell show every day And Rosie O'Donnell was known as the Queen of Nice. And everyone loved Rosie O'Donnell. At this point, Rosie was one of the biggest hits of all of television. Everybody loved her. She got all the fun celebrity interviews. She got celebrities into her hijinks. And her other big thing was she was not the savior of Broadway, but she was Broadway's biggest champion. Yeah, Yeah, she she would so often At least... At least once a week, she would have a Broadway show on performing. And And no one does that. Anytime she went to a Broadway opening, she had the playbill the next day. If she, well, if she liked it, she had the playbill the next day and she would spend five minutes talking about what she liked about the show, how much she liked it. And that's going in front of millions of people. But not only did she like Broadway, when Hedvig and the Angry Inch opened off-Broadway, This was a small (laughs) off-Broadway show playing the ballroom of the Jane Street Hotel. And it sat, what, maybe 200 people? 
Rosie O'Donnell had Hedvig and the Angry Inch. She had John Cameron Mitchell perform Origin of Love, a six-minute song. She let him do the entire <laughs> six minutes, this small off-Broadway show, and because she always did a synopsis of the show, somehow she got a synopsis of Hedvig and the Angry Inch past the network censors. That in <laughs> itself is an accomplishment. And then if you watch the clip, she starts to do the synopsis, and the audience starts tittering because they don't know how to react to someone on the gender spectrum. This is a completely new concept. Mm. She hears them tittering, and without missing a beat, she says, open your minds. And she continues. She immediately shuts down the laughter. She says, this is something I support. And I don't know if anyone in this audience, studio audience, will buy a ticket to this show, but I am having this guy on because I like this show. And this is not for the studio audience. This is for all the little faggots. Let me retake that. This is for all of the little <laughs> gay people out in the country that are going to see this and identify with this. I pray to you keep that entire take in. <laughs> oh my god. So, Rosie, huge musical theater fan, biggest Broadway supporter, and I remember when she went into Seussical, and the next day, after every performance, she gave an update of how the show went. And I remember she showed a picture of her son Parker, I believe after her opening night, her son Parker came onto the stage during the curtain call and gave her a hug at the end of the show. And she had a picture okay. of that that she showed all the audience. And I remember she had Kathy Rigby on later when Kathy Rigby took over the show. She knew Susical might not necessarily be the biggest hit. There were some rumors out of town. It wasn't good. She saw it. She liked it. She promoted the show. And then they came to the point where they were saying, we're going to have to close in the winter. And they asked her, rather than close, would you come in for a month? During January, the coldest month of ticket sales on Broadway, she said yes. She didn't do Wednesday matinees because she had the show, but she did the rest of the performances that week, every week, for a month or so. And she's perfect. What a great performance. Is she, is she a vocalist? Eh, not really. She can sing. She can carry a tune. Um... Is this a great acting challenge for her? Mm, not really. Does any of that matter? Mm, not really. She's just a very likable person and exactly the kind of MC you need for this show. Just so quick. You need to have that like mm -hmm. intuitive quickness to you to be able to like really effectively do something like that, you know? The improvised sections are really strong. Yeah, here. they are. No one has a question for her. She turns to the adult and she said, $85 the ticket. You don't have a question. You don't have anything to say to me. <laughs> and there's the, the kid Which... yell. There's like the moment where the kid yells like completely unprompted. Like he went up, like he went up, up the stairs or whatever. And, uh, mm -hmm. she like turns to the audience. She goes like, uh, $85 a ticket. He goes up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> it's so perfect. It's so on the money. Um, Which also, can we yeah. just talk about these were, what would now be called premium seats. $85. Top ticket price. $85. Can you Get imagine? the inflation calculator out. Get the inflation calculator. We should mention before we move on from Rosie, she gets the only standing ovation. 
in the show. Hmm. It's exciting. You're seeing a major star that you watch on your TV every day in front of you. Next up, we have Kevin Chamberlain as Horton the Elephant. Here's my thing. I really love Kevin Chamberlain. I once, as a kid, reached out to Kevin Chamberlain on Twitter, and he responded back to me. And um, it was then that I knew I was destined for stardom. (laughs) I just love Kevin Chamberlain. He's a fantastic performer. A lot of people in my generation really love him. He's on this uh, Disney Channel show called Jesse, and that's sort of where he is sort of most popular for playing a butler named Bertram. And I absolutely love the guy. And I was so excited to like watch Kevin Chamberlain in Susical. And then I and uh, and after watching the video, um, I was I was I was whelmed. I was not underwhelmed. I was not overwhelmed. I was I was whelmed. I thought it was a, a, a fine performance. I thought there was real heart there. Some very very sweet moments. I didn't have a lot to say about the performance itself. You know, I was editing something rotten the other day. And I mentioned for the amount of money people are paying, everyone gets to have an off day at work, but your off day has to be pretty damn good. I do think this might have been an off day at work for Kevin Chamberlain. I say that uh, because there's not really a sparkle in his eyes. He seems a little bit tired. It seems like it's been maybe a rough week. But this is an example of an off day being... Of an incredibly high standard. Mm-hmm. I think he's pretty great in this um, specific performance and this specific recording. Um, vocally, there are no problems. He sounds just like he does on the album. That's his voice. No issues there. Everything is well acted. It's just not the most exciting he's ever performed. But yeah. I don't feel like I'm missing anything. I don't think it's like, like, it wasn't like a completely like, uh, I'm not getting anything from this. I can very much, I'm open to believing that it was like an off day in particular. I know the kind of performances that he can give, you know, I know that there's like a good. Right. And if we didn't have another, if we didn't have anything else to go off of, we'd probably be very impressed with him here. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. I thought he was very good. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he was the only Tony nomination for the show, I believe. And you can see why he got a nomination. Because it is a very good performance. And he is God. He is God. This show had to be exhausting. And that show really does sit on the back of Horton. And that is a lot of pressure. Especially with the show doing poorly out of town, that had to be a lot of pressure. There had to be a lot of stress there, especially with this big, giant, multi-million dollar production literally on your back. Hmm. And he delivers. He absolutely delivers. The fact that it isn't the best performance he's given is a quibble. It's not a problem. Yeah, that's all I have to say about it, I guess. So, next up, we have... Uh, Janine Lamana as Gertrude McFuzz. This show feels like it's filled with character actors mm-hmm. who haven't necessarily been given much of a chance and are performing their asses off. I thought that Janine Lamana gives a great performance, very touching at moments, 
certainly vocally secure. The entire cast, top to bottom, seems really vocally secure. There's not much difference from what you hear on the album than what you're hearing on this bootleg. Hmm. Okay, Rosie isn't David Shiner. That's the big difference. <laughs> <laughs> she was likable. She was just a likable person to watch on stage. I really liked her as well. She played that endearingness very well. She had like a very genuine girl next door thing going for her. Genuine is the perfect word for it. Yeah. Next up we got Michelle Pock as Maisie LaBird. The amazing Maisie. Uh, okay. I don't know if you got this impression. I got this impression. She started going through her song and I was like, she's in a much more serious show than everybody else on stage. Yes, I agree. Which I did not mind. And it was well done. I thought it worked. And she really had subtext. And she really had a personal journey that she went through throughout the show. Ibsen's Susicle. Maybe. I also got that impression just from uh, the, the reprise she did with the egg. Yeah, and almost like I realize I'm giving up my baby, but I won't be a good mother to this child, so I do have to give him up, and I think Horton is actually a good person, and <laughs> it's kind of interesting when you learn she just had a kid months before Susical started, so... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that was oh, there feeling very yeah, yeah, yeah. That was very, feeling very real, very lived in. Of I don't know if I'm going to be a good mother. <laughs> Golly, I, I was really impressed with her, and she was in a much more serious show than anyone else on that stage. So true, so true. There was so much like real groundedness that mm-hmm. like didn't need to be there, but was. I appreciated it. I didn't think it took away from anything. I didn't think it was... Although no one else was giving that exact energy, I didn't think it felt out of place. Mm. But it's just something that, yeah, you notice, you see, and you appreciate. I I did have that exact response to her, and I did notice that so strongly. Um, I thought I was going crazy, like... She yeah. she was really like was she was like crazy. pulling in like really... Uda Hagen, Michael Shirtlip, like all the acting techniques, which is fun to see did the work. for Susical. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Why not? If you're gonna be on stage and they're gonna pay you, you might as well make everything. You might as well make a meal of it. Let's move on. Who's next? Uh, Sharon Wilkins as the sour kangaroo. I loved her. Absolutely. Oh, she's just she's fun. She's fun. Yeah. She has a voice that won't quit. And she knows what show she's being. She, she knows exactly the show that she is in. And she knows exactly what to give you in that show. God, her vocal quality is so delightful to listen to. Like, I would, I would, I would buy an to, album of hers. And to give her that puppet and to say make it work. <laughs> and she actually makes it work. Tall order. True. Here's a puppet. Figure it out. And she absolutely does figure it out. That's a rare quality. That's the mark of a talented performer. Never boring. Never boring. Really, 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 really loved her. Another fantastically fun performance in a show that really um, nurtures those. 
we have Anthony Blair Hall as Jojo. You yes, love child actors. Um, All right. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I know you love child actors, so I want, I, I'm sure you're chomping at the bit, so I'll, I'll let you have the first word. By all means, take a sip of water right now. This is one of the best performances I've seen from a child actor. <laughs> what? There we go. There we go. Unprecedented. All right. You want to get into why this works more than other child actors? More than anything. First of all, it has a surprisingly fantastic voice. I, you can't really have much vocal technique as a kid, but that is a mm-hmm. solid voice. He's not hurting himself. That's very accurate. He sounds exactly like he does on the album. And then acting, not much is asked of him acting-wise, but you know why he is better than the other kids? What is that? He doesn't try to be cute. Hmm. He just he is. Doesn't, he doesn't try to be cute. He doesn't try to be um, likable. He doesn't try to be anything on that stage other than this is who I am and this is how I would react in this situation. Which really is what all good acting is, regardless of age. This is who this person is and this is how they react to the situation. That is what he is doing. He's doing a simplified version of it. But he's just being himself on stage. And because he seems kind of unadorned, you do get that he's cute. You do get that he's likable. Because he's not trying to be such. That is just naturally who he is. Just going about his daily life. I really enjoyed this performance. Wow, I I real I wish I were You're recording shocked. this. I wish you I were, were recording this sincerely, so I could have this on tape. God, that'd be fantastic. I'm recording this. <gasps> I thought he was great. He has a fantastic sense see of what stage I mean? present. He's great at coming along with the with the journey. It's exactly what it is. He's he knows he knows how to buckle along for the ride. He knows how to make himself feel immersed in that world. Um. He's yeah, not trying can, to perform. I can, yeah. He's not trying to it's, perform. He's not trying to put on, like, a happy face. He's not doing, like, the the smile and wave. He's just out there and he is himself. And he's good at it. He comes off, and, and like, for, for an actor in general to come off as though they are just themselves is a great quality. It's hard for a lot of adults to achieve. Yeah, it's harder, it's harder to achieve in acting than one would initially think. And so for anyone to pull that off, let alone a child actor, is uh, the mark of a mm-hmm. good performer. And then we should mention the mayor's wife is Alice Platon. We have already covered Alice Platon. You didn't realize it, but in our first episode of Gypsy, where we listened to the audio of Ethel Merman and Gypsy, Alice mm-hmm. Platon was the young baby Louise. A interesting career charting from uh, from the original Broadway production of Gypsy to Susicle. What trajectory would you call that? Well, she did a million other things. She was a great character actress. And she's funny here. She does Very land funny. several different laughs where you would not expect laughs because <laughs> she's a great character actress. Um, but, I mean, you have this little kid who plays JoJo, and if you can imagine... He's now, what, 20-something? <laughs> and he can directly link himself all the way back to Ethel Merman. 
Isn't that terrific? Lucky kid. And so the cast on a whole, this is one hell of a cast. I, I concur. I don't think there's really a bad performance in the show. It's a, it, it, I like what you said earlier about it being an ensemble piece. It's a, like, this really is a company effort. Like, everyone's got to be on the same page here. And there is a great consistency here with the company. Everyone is on the same page. Everyone's working together in this, like, fantastic synchronicity. Everyone seems to be performing on the same level. Yes. So, the video itself. <sighs> Do you want to talk about that thing? I told you what was going to be your favorite moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I never actually did express to you, like, I never gave you my reactions as it was happening. I, I was upset about that. I've never had, like, such a skin-crawling experience. I was squirming. I was so uncomfortable. The beginning of the second act is corrupted beyond any repair. The first, I would say, five, ten minutes Corrupted or so. as in, like, we're about to have Rico charges against the producers, or, like, what do you mean? Corrupted as in glitchy, unwatchable, pixelated, dropping in and out, freezing, pausing, shuddering mess. And the first 10 minutes only had intermittent audio. There were long periods without any audio. I actually got worried that the entire second act wasn't going to be there. And it turns out it was just the first 10 minutes. As soon as they get out of that circus McGurkis thing, you're fine. Thankfully, Thankfully, I think the most of what we missed was a quick recap of where we are now. And then mm -hmm. about five minutes of improvisation by Rosie O'Donnell playing an auctioneer. It just made my skin crawl. Like, I, oh, I hated it so much. <clears throat> well, these things do happen. And it's what? 21 years old. This tape can drink. It's disappointing, but it happens. Um, that's my, that's my thing to say about that one part. Overall, though, as a video. The camera's a little unsteady. It's a little times. unsteady. Um... It's- it misses a couple Not things too much of an issue. here and there. It's sort of like it takes a little bit too long to zoom out, zoom back in. Of course, the, the art of this is it's a very difficult one. It's not the simplest thing to do, obviously. But every now and then you get the feeling that you're missing a little something. And especially in a show where it's like you really want to get the full picture, missing a couple things here and there is uh, feels a bit more substantial. Uh, the other thing about the copy that we watched, the color of the video, um, pulsated. So... A little bit. I, I didn't notice it much. Just a tiny bit. Ooh, I was very sensitive to it. So oh, yeah? The color got more vibrant for a hmm. second here, and then went back, and then got vibrant for about a minute, and then went back. It, throughout this show, the color was a minor annoyance. Look, this had a lot of minor annoyances... The 10 minutes of the second act were disappointing. Otherwise, I think they did a really good job. I have seen a lot of videos from this exact time that are much worse. Sure, but like taking in, sure, the merit of what it went in to make them and everything, but also just as how well does this give you the experience of seeing the show. And frankly... 
I I think I'm gonna place this video at like a B minus. Yeah, B B minus for me. Oh, another mm. thing. Mm. Because of fucking course, you get to Alone in the Universe, which is such a beautiful song, such a beautiful ballad. And there's one young kid that starts talking really loud. Someone <laughs> shut the fucking kid up. Don't take your kid to the theater if they can't shut the fuck up or you can't slap them into just shutting up. And you're oh, ruining God. the goddamn ballad for the rest of us that care about these things. If you're listening to this kid who was yelling in that, know that Dan has a personal vendetta against you. I hate you. I never want to be in an audience with you again. I don't wish COVID on you. I don't wish COVID on pretty much anybody. But I don't know where you are in this life. But because you talk through that ballad, that gets at the base of who you are as a human being. And I know you are a terrible human being. And I don't need to share the world with you. It was a beautiful Very ballad. Put. <laughs> who can't sit I... through a beautiful ballad? I don't get these people. Some of us are better with children. Yeah, well... I was reading a Dr. Spock book, and it says here, The faggot remaining (laughs) single. Jesus Christ. Just in the (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Interesting way to hardcore pivot into next week's episode. (laughs) What are we doing next week? Well, next week we are going to be talking about the national tour of guys and dolls, specifically the national tour of the Broadway revival. Who's in it? Who's in it? Who's in it? Who's in it? Oh, the revival? Oh, it was great. Uh, they got, uh, it was awesome. They had Nathan Lane in it. Who's in the tour? Who's in Prince. the tour? Who's in the tour? Who's in the tour? Um, oh, and I think Rebel Wilson did a tour of guys and dolls, like at some point in history. Um, which tour do you mean? Which tour? The one we're watching. Joshua. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, the one with Lorna Luft. Lorna Luft! Lorna Luft. Lorna Luft of... Lorna Luft! L- Lorna Luft of Dan's beloved Garlands. Of the terrific Gum Garland Manelli Luft acting dynasty. What a what a series of syllables. This is the second time we're coming around to her, huh? We uh, saw her in... Uh, and well, not saw. We heard her in Gypsy, and now we're coming back to her in a different role. And it's great, because when you play the episode next week, we're going to say, this is our first time covering Lorna Luft. <laughs> because we always record in sequence, and we totally did not record Guys and Dolls before we recorded the Gypsy finale. You couldn't find a way to cut around that? It was integral. It's part of the charm. Fair enough. Fair enough. But this is going to really confuse them then. So then, because then they're like, so when did they record this one? (laughs) We had to change some schedules around. So this tag. Our our podcast is nothing but chaos and flim flam and dipsy doodle. See you next week. Dipsy doodle. Dipsy Doodle. Let's go take our Dipsy Doodle ass off to Salasalu. <laughs> See you next week. Oh, the things you can think. Oh, the things you can think. If you're willing to try. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critics Circle. Tune in next week when we talk about guys and dolls, specifically the National Tour production from February 1994. 
If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critic Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Susicle! And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critic Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute the recordings discussed here. Mm-hmm.